Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Lintelac Foundation. I absolutely believe that as a nation we could move much more aggressively to renewable energy, and I do believe it could supply a lot more of the load a lot quicker if we did that. Can energy sources that emit minimal global warming pollution scale up in time to meet our needs? You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudenberg. The patterns of how we use energy in our homes, our transportation, and our schools and workplaces are noticeably shifting. Conservation practices like use of Energy Star products, hybrid cars, and many more young people taking public transit are part of the change. Giant windmills that don't consume fuels are now more common. And a greater number of homeowners are installing solar panels on the rooftop, like Tufts University environment professor Bill Muma in western Massachusetts. I'm optimistic in the sense that uh, uh, the technology is clearly here. It has improved tremendously in a very short period of time. I, I installed some additional panels on my garage for, so, I could, so I could have an electric vehicle, plug-in vehicle, and um, uh, I was really surprised. Uh, the panels I installed in 2007 were, were very expensive. Uh, these were much less expensive. Uh, the, the panel, the price of the panels was, uh, I think, only 40% per watt of what I paid uh, seven years before. And they were nearly twice as e- efficient per square foot. Now, that's, that's really a measure of, uh, of technological pr- progress and, uh, and, and uh, dropping of prices. Power from the local electricity grid is mostly coal-fired, oil-fired, or gas-fired, all high in carbon emissions associated with climate change. By contrast, solar panels merely convert sunlight to electricity without burning anything. And while prices of the panels have dropped sharply, installing them is still pretty expensive in the United States. The cost of putting it on your roof, that, that's a labor-intensive process, and we have not developed really uh, efficient ways of doing that. Uh, other countries are, move, are, are, you know, their costs of installing uh, a solar panel are about half of what it costs in this country. Some of that is that because they're doing it better. They're doing it better in two ways. One, um, in in this country, every local building inspector has a say in what is done and can charge an arbitrary fee for the permit. In other countries, 
Uh, in fact, I think the state of Connecticut has gone to a standard fee. It's $50, that's it. In my town, it's $500, whether you install one panel or 100 panels. Uh, there's, there's no rationality to this system. And so all those extra costs add up uh, and make it more expensive. So we could even drop the, we, that's where the big future savings in the U.S. will be, is when we get the installation, uh, the so-called balance of systems, everything but the panels, uh, get those costs to come down. So are we there? Is the technology at the point now where this can be adopted on a very large scale? Yes. And in fact, it has been adopted on a very large scale. I mean, if you look at, at, at Europe, where they've installed a, a lot of, of wind, you look at China, where they've installed a lot of wind, it's been possible to install it so rapidly that, uh, that, that the, 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 the running the wires to them has lagged behind in some cases. And within a year or two, the wires are there, and uh, these, these are producing uh, power into the grid. Um, uh, the, the grid itself is a whole interesting story that will determine whether we can go f f really large scale with renewables or not. Um, it's been demonstrated in countries, I mean, Germany gets, I think I saw 26% of its electricity from renewable energy now. Germany's a big industrial country, you know, they make, make Mercedes-Benzes and BMWs and high-tech MRIs and all sorts of things. And how does that compare with the current proportion of renewable energy in the United States? We are, I've seen figures as high as 14%, but, but again, about uh, that's largely because of we, we've put so much uh, uh, ethanol into our gasoline. Uh, I'd say for electricity, it's probably more in the range of 10%. That's still, that's still decent, because we had virtually none, uh, uh, certainly 10 years ago, we had, had very, very little. And now this has grown, uh, I think, uh, what did I see, something 15 times as much solar was installed last year as was installed in 2008. Um, you know, it's, it's, these are dr dramatically increasing uh, numbers. So in Germany, about a fourth yes. of total electricity consumption yes. of what is used is, is, uh, is coming from renewables. Scientists define renewable energy as sources that are easily replenished, like the sunlight that will reliably appear tomorrow at dawn or the wind that will resume blowing soon enough. Or even biomass like wood, which is commonly used to heat stoves in poorer nations. But fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas come literally from fossils, which may have taken hundreds of millions of years to develop and cannot be replaced anytime soon. Climate scientists advocate greater use of renewables because their global warming carbon emissions are dramatically lower. Nuclear energy has a relatively light carbon footprint but comes with high cost and considerable dangers to public safety. served as a lead author on the UN's landmark study on adoption of renewable energy worldwide. You know, if you look at, at, at China, uh, renewables are growing very rapidly, but uh, coal-powered plants are also growing rapidly, and nuclear power is growing rapidly, although nuclear power is well behind renewables there in terms of its total output, because they, they, they just started nuclear 
I don't know, 15 years ago or something, and they, they but, but that's accelerating, and, and it could well uh, take things over. Uh, the, the difference here is one of scale. I mean, you put in one big coal plant or one big nuclear plant, and you get a big chunk at one time, but it takes a long time to build it. And enormously expensive. And it's enormously, ex and particularly the nuclear plants are enormously expensive. And whereas wind turbines and solar panels are something you can manufacture in a factory, like an automobile. I mean, I did the back of the envelope calculation once. Every year in the United States, if you look at the power of the engines of the cars we build, it, it is slightly more than the total electric power capacity we have in this country. You do that every year. Now, it just suggests it's possible, you know. Uh, in World War II, we stopped building cars and began building uh, how many ever uh, tens of thousands of aircraft and tanks and other things in a very short five-year period of time. But just a decision the nation it's made. It's a decision we had to make then. And if we saw climate change as uh, serious as, uh, as, as, a w as a global scale war, we could, we could make the shift in a very short period of time. Is it as serious as the threat of a global scale war? I think long-term it is. I think there will be more more deaths, more destruction, more loss of economic activity from climate change. It is quite staggering. The latest IPCC report lays it all out pretty clearly, I think. Nobody on this planet is going to be untouched by the impacts of climate change. Rajendra Pachari chairs the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He says the trend of hotter summers, prolonged drought, more violent storms, and greater coastal flooding are long-predicted effects from pumping high quantities of heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere. We know that all the glaciers are shrinking due to climate change. There are some parts of the world where these so-called water towers, which are in the form of ice, which stores substantial quantities of water, would be getting depleted in future if we don't do anything about climate change. And that certainly will affect the availability of water for a large number of people, hundreds of millions of people downstream. There are negative impacts on crop yields, particularly in the lower latitudes. There are serious health impacts which include heat-related deaths. And the spread of diseases from contaminated water, which can be fatal. This bleak picture is greatly attributable, climate scientists say, to our use of energy that aggravates global warming. But there is counter-movement. One business leader trying to help reverse the climate trend is Mary Powell, chief executive of Vermont's largest electricity provider, Green Mountain Power. This is dispatch, central dispatch for the company. This is where they operate the grid from, so this is where they interface with uh, Velco, the transmission company. They also are working with all of our linemen that are doing projects out and about on the grid, so they manage uh, you know, what is going on. They also monitor all of the hydro units. You can see them up on those screens, uh, those TV screens. From the dispatch room in Colchester, Vermont, near Burlington, Green Mountain operates 32 different hydroelectric facilities, of which there's a tradition in Vermont going back more than a century. Mary Powell says hydro is not only low carbon, but also by far the company's cheapest way to generate electricity. Fundamentally, what we're starting to see is this consumer-driven shift where customers want more engagement with their energy, whether it's 
the cars they're driving, whether it's the distributed generation resources, principally solar, that are available, whether it's the you know news that Tesla may be partnering on technology where you could have solar and storage, so you could really literally be off-grid. I believe that those technologies are catching an edge, and I believe that we are at a kind of tipping point where consumers are going to drive that. I also really see it as a switch, uh, an interesting one where it's going to come from the rural parts of America to the urban parts because, you know, you look at our infrastructure, if you drive around Vermont, it's not hard to follow. It's like, okay, there's the substation, there's the wire, there it goes, it goes to that house. It's really easy to insert different technologies in a rural uh, uh, grid environment. It's perhaps not surprising that Vermont, with its long history of thrifty Yankee individualism and its long commitment to environmental responsibility, finds itself at the leading edge of the renewable energy revolution. We've taken the position um, that we want to help customers accelerate uh, the adoption of solar. you know, we, we've worked hard with our customers. We actually, interestingly enough, we were one of, the, I think, the first in the country. We actually went out and said, we'll pay you six cents a kilowatt for every uh, kilowatt that you generate uh, if you want to put up solar. Because what we found is that was a good deal for all of our customers because uh, it was, it was uh, very cost-effective for those days when power cr- prices were crazy in the summer. But not all energy companies embrace renewables so warmly. Solar energy is an important part of our nation's energy mix. And there's growing customer interest in using rooftop solar panels to generate electricity. That's a good thing. However, outdated policies shift grid costs from solar customers to non-solar customers, and that's not fair. Let's update these policies and pave the way for solar to continue to shine. This ad is by Edison Electric Institute, a Washington-based trade association representing the electric power industry. It challenges a system known as net metering, which has been approved by over 40 states. Net metering generally requires power companies to buy surplus electricity generated by homeowners with solar panels. Edison Electric maintains that this forces non-solar homes to subsidize solar energy. Yes, I've heard that argument. Mary Powell of Green Mountain Power. In fact, we participated in a lot of discussion about it in Vermont, right, because a lot of the utilities had that same view that if, uh, you know, that it's not fair, that it creates this cost shift. We've done analysis, we've done it again and again and again, and I cannot sit here and tell you that we have seen any cost shift at Green Mountain Power. We just have not. I mean, power markets go up, they go down. Um, Certainly there have been summers where that solar is less valuable in the market, right, in defraying other costs for other customers than in other summers. But so far, our analysis over that time period for us and for our customers doesn't support that problem. In fact, says Powell, including solar energy in the mix may actually be a money saver for the company's overall customer base. Green Mountain Power both accepts surplus electricity generated by home solar panels and operates its own solar arrays. When we first were going to solar and embracing it back in 2007 and 2008, one of the things some of our staff said was, geez, we think if enough customers adopt solar, maybe we don't have to build as much 
transmission. Because again, you're building your transmission for the worst peak possible plus, right? Because you don't want brownouts and you don't want, you want an incredibly reliable grid. So we were kind of like thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe, geez, if there's enough, I mean, and it doesn't, it's, it's, it's because, because heat goes on further into the day. I mean, solar doesn't eliminate the peak, but it does affect the peak. So we were, you know, so a few of our folks were saying that. Interestingly enough, here we are, however many years later, and actually Velco is the transmission company in Vermont uh, that is owned by the Vermont Utilities as well as there's also some public ownership of it. And they did a study that actually showed, oh my gosh, the amount of solar we've put online has deferred the need for probably anywhere from 200 to 300 million dollars of transmission projects. We're examining the growth of renewable energy like solar and wind power as a way to mitigate the effects of climate change. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. You can learn more and can access the in-depth UN report on renewables by visiting us at humanmedia.org. One common question is whether renewables are dependable. What happens to our electricity on a cloudy day or, or a calm day when the wind is not blowing? Right. This is, this is a, certainly um, an important question. Tufts University environmental policy professor Bill Muma. Let me just preface it by saying that our reliable coal and gas power plants also have to have backup. Every, if we had only uh, coal and nuclear and uh, natural gas, we would have to have uh, not just the amount we need at the peak, but something uh, about at least 20% more than that. Some of these have to be taken out for maintenance. Some of them break down. Uh, in other words, these are not 100% all the time, although that's the perception. So basically, we, we do need to have some way to deal with the variability of the sun, now, the country that's in the lead on this is Germany, because Germany made a commitment to not only get out of, uh, of uh, coal uh, over the next uh, 40 years, but also to uh, shut down their nuclear power plants. After the, 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 the Fukushima disaster, uh, Germans uh, um, actually made it very clear that they would not tolerate continuing the use of, of nuclear power. So this is a problem because this is a very industrially, uh, in, you know, heavy industry country, and um, and it means a transition. So how do you keep things going? Well, Germany is the only place I know that has created a virtual grid of 100% renewable energy that has maintained a constant output for one year. So no dips in output nope. if the wind stops blowing nope. or if the sun shining is nope. occluded by clouds? Well, they do it by, because uh, they have wind turbines in the North Sea. They have wind turbines in other parts of the country. The wind doesn't always stop blowing exactly at the same moment in every place. Uh, the sun does stop shining in the same all over Germany at about the same time 
uh, every day, and the seasonal variability is roughly the same across the country. And so what they do is they actually use information technology to manage this virtual grid, and it's grown fourfold in just a, a year and a half. So they're ahead of schedule in terms of taking this whole thing on. Again, there's po there are policies in place that encourage this to happen. And, um, and there may even be some uh, financial help to get this all started. But in other words, instead of wringing our hands and saying the sun doesn't shine all the time, which is the, unfortunately what I hear mostly in the United States, or the wind doesn't blow all the time, the Germans are saying, well, what do we do about it? Another thing they do is they are coupled to, um, uh, in their grid to Norway, which is uh, virtually 100% uh, hydropower. And they can dispatch that power anytime they want. And they often dispatch it to Denmark when, um, uh, when, when, when the wind isn't blowing hard enough in Denmark. They have all this wind power there. Uh, Denmark has the problem. They have so much wind capacity that there are times when they are producing more than the whole grid in Europe can use. They have had days when they have produced 100% of what they needed on that day on a windy day. So this is a, it's a problem managing this variability. There's no question about it. But the Germans are leading in figuring out how to manage a grid of differing technology. It's, in other words, it's a hybrid. It's not just one constant, one way of doing things. No silver bullet. There's no silver bullet here. Uh, but because it's hybrid, it means that you have increased reliability. The aim in greater use of renewable energy is to provide an alternative to fossil fuels, whose emission of carbon dioxide, or CO2, heats up the environment. But in some cases, adoption of lower carbon energy can bring its own set of impacts, says Vermont Public Radio News Director John Dillon. There's a Green Mountain Power Project in the Northeast Kingdom that was subject of really intense debate. And that's totally divided environmentalists. What's you know what's the trade-off to the upper elevation ecosystem of clearing a swath of land for these big turbines? Um, what's the trade-off that's presented by doing that versus um, the the reduction in carbon emissions? And how much of a reduction is carbon? How much is carbon actually reduced when you need backup generation when the wind isn't blowing? You know, the state is moving towards more renewables, but I think there's a big question about how much ultimately we'll get from renewables. You know, Hydro-Quebec is now defined by the state of Vermont as renewable because it's hydropower and the water, um, you know, you don't, you don't burn up the water. It's just <laughs> it's part of the hydrological cycle. However, they're very, very large projects that have huge impacts on the environment and people who are flooded, you know, out of where they used to live. So are you saying that sources of renewable energy carry a larger environmental footprint than may be commonly understood? I guess what I'm saying is that every form of electricity generation has an impact, and it's simplistic to think that something that is labeled renewable has no impact. Hydro-Quebec has an impact, has an impact on the ecosystem when you take a wild river and make it a lake or a reservoir. Um, Ridgeline wind has an impact on that particular habitat. Solar 
you know, I don't know what the, the impact is aesthetic. It's people don't like looking at these massive solar arrays, but you can graze animals under them. Um, but there, everything has an impact. It, it, everything isn't mountaintop mining for coal or, you know, hugely polluting, but you're not going to get energy free. And um, so, but, you know, the biggest threat to the, to the planet is, is from excess CO2 production, then people put up with those impacts. Which brings us back to the option of energy conservation, cutting down on unnecessary consumption of energy. This can mean better home insulation so as not to waste heat or cooling, or vehicles that guzzle less fuel per mile, or taking public transit once or twice a month, or just attentively turning off lights and appliances when not in use. It's the low-hanging fruit of counteracting climate change. John Dillon. I think Vermont's doing pretty well on that. We were one of the first places, if not the first, to set up our own efficiency utility in which um, a little charge in your electric bill went to pay for an entity that then went out and did retrofitting, uh, starting with lights and uh, heating and cooling improvements in industry and farms and major energy users. So we've flattened the growth in energy demand considerably through efficiency investments. Um, and Vermont policymakers for probably 10 years at least have made that a priority. And, and if you want to talk about the state's culture, I think people like to save energy. People like to have their houses not leak. They like to burn less wood than they have to. They, they like to you know, not pay the light bill a or certain, pay less on the light bill, a certain frugality of, uh, of the New England ethic, right? We don't want to use power that we don't have to. Um, there's a lot of work left to be done on the home heating side. So we've done a lot with electricity. Our main carbon emissions come from heating and transportation, not from electricity. Um, because of our fortunate clean energy mix, which is hydro, was nuclear, um, still is purchased nuclear. And um, so we don't have a lot of uh, coal and oil in our mix, except when utilities have to go out and buy in the spot market. We have in-state hydro, we have hydroelectric, uh, hydroelectric power from Canada. So we, we don't have a big carbon impact on the electric generation side. Um, but we do on the transportation side because this is a rural state and people have to drive everywhere. And we do on the home heating side because it's an old, well-settled state and the housing stock is really old. And so it's inefficient. Single-family homes, farmhouses that have been there for 150 years leak like sieves. And so the effort recently has been to retrofit as many houses and businesses as possible to make them more efficient and use less fuel oil or natural gas or whatever fuel to heat in the winter. The big debate there is, is, has been over how to pay for it, and uh, environmental groups and energy advocates have said, hey, some sort of carbon tax, um, you know, let's figure out how to pay for it because you'll reap dividends, you know, you'll, you'll release less CO2 and you'll, you'll save people money because they're not going to be spending money to heat the outdoors through a leaky house. And as of yet, there hasn't been a broad-based funding source agreed to 
and that's been a political issue. John Dillon, who has extensively covered environment and energy for Vermont Public Radio. Certainly, politics and business interests pervade the entire discussion of climate change, including whether and how to promote greater adoption of low-carbon energy. But in many ways, our general level of personal consumption, which kinds of energy we use and how frugally we use it, are also defined by the choices each of us makes as an individual. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose, associate producer Mark Kilstein. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham, webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Vermont Public Radio and to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Renewables, is Humankind program number 213. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.